Hi, and thanks for downloading. On this episode, I had the opportunity to talk with Kimberly Bowles, a two-year breast cancer survivor. We talked about her journey through breast cancer, which led her to becoming an advocate for patient decisions. Keep listening to find out why. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here with Kim, a two-year breast cancer survivor from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I actually met Kim uh, via Facebook uh, through a another friend, ironically named Kim, <laughs> as well. So welcome, Kim, to the podcast. Thanks, Melissa. Glad to be here. Yeah. So we're going to talk about your breast cancer story. So I already mentioned that you are a two-year survivor, uh, but I'd like to kind of hear a little bit about your diagnosis, um, when that happened, um, how old you were at the time, um, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, I was about, it'd been 10, about 10 months since I had my second baby and I was breastfeeding her and, uh, I found a lump. I was 35. That was in the end of 2016. My three-year-old was about to go to preschool for the first time, and I was diagnosed pretty much the week he went to preschool. So you found a lump. Did you find the lump while you were breastfeeding? Did you find the lump kind of doing a self-exam? Yeah, I was actually lying down, and my husband, like, rolled over onto it, and I felt it pressing into my chest like a hard, you know, hard mass. And I, like, I knew instantly, uh, you know, we have, I have breast cancer in my family on my dad's side, and I, I knew what it was. You know, I'd had clogged ducts before, and that's not what this was. And I, I've since learned that a lot of women, especially, like, younger women with dense breasts and women that have larger breasts, that's a common thing where you don't notice it until you're lying down, in the lying down position. Somehow right. that reveals the lump more easily for some women, so... Hmm. And so I'm assuming you went in for an exam, maybe with a gynecologist and they referred you to it for a diagnostic mammogram and, um, yeah, exactly. It was pretty standard. The, the gynecologist, um, originally, I think he was an OBGYN. He originally said, that's a clogged duct. Come back in a week. (laughs) And I convinced him to give me the script and I just ran down to radiology. Okay. I wonder if maybe we had the same gynecologist. Yeah. <laughs> the only reason I say that is one, um, you know, being from Pittsburgh and I kind of got the same thing from my gynecologist. Um, not, not that it was a clogged duct, but it was, um, too young family, you know, your family history is too far. Distant, yeah. It's the misconception right. that you're, you're too young and no woman is too young for breast cancer. Absolutely. It happens to young women all the time. It's not the stereotypical patient, but it does happen to women all the time, and in young women, as you know, it's more likely to be missed right. or misdiagnosed. I have a couple of friends who were at a missed diagnosis, and it, you know, it costs them dearly, and they'll always wonder Absolutely. if I'd been taken seriously the first time, mm-hmm. would I have had a better prognosis? Right. 
not a great thing to have to live with at a young age, especially if you have young children to think about. No, absolutely. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, coming, you know, a three-year-old and a 10-month-old, um, I'm sure the, the furthest thing from your mind was potentially having to think about cancer. Yeah, nobody thinks it's going to happen to them. No. Um, so did you have, um, did you have to go for a biopsy? Was that kind of the, you know, kind of the standard yeah. route? Okay. Okay. It was pretty standard. They, they had me go for, uh, <clears throat> an ultrasound and then a mammogram, which was suspicious and then a biopsy and then a node biopsy. And <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was her two positive cancer. And so it was, um, a less common subtype. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about the HER2. I'm um, estrogen and pro- progesterone positive. So I, you know, never really yeah. dove too far into the HER2. Um, so I'd like to have a conversation, well, you know, I'd like to kind of hear a little bit more about that. So HER2 is a growth factor that exists on the outside of the cell um, that. <clears throat> an overexpression of this growth factor causes your cancer to grow really fast and have a worse prognosis for metastatic recurrence and even for local recurrence. But on the other hand, it also makes the cancer susceptible to targeted drugs that are less toxic and that give you a better chance for a complete pathologic response to chemo, which means that your prognosis, if you have that response, your prognosis can improve really dramatically. So it can be curative. And so on the one hand, you know, it used to be really bad to have a HER2 positive diagnosis, but now it almost, it's almost a good mm-hmm. good thing because, oops, sorry, my phone's buzzing at me. It's almost a good thing because you have these targeted drugs that aren't, you know, they're not, they're not poisonous like most chemo drugs are, and you can actually be on them um, for years and years with, very little chance of adverse effects. Things like Herceptin, for example, that's the the one that people think about when they think of her too. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Like I said, it, it wasn't, um, Mm -hmm. there's a whole movie about it called, Oh, what's the movie called? (laughs) It has Harry Connick Jr. in it. Ah, Google. Yeah. We'll find it. Google. (laughs) We'll find it. Movie about, about his story, the guy that invented Herceptin, but it was a big, it was a game changer. So I was really actually, I'm just really thankful to be alive yeah. in in a day and age where even with a horrible cancer, we have drugs that treat it. I did end up having a right. complete pathologic response to the chemo. So my prognosis was a lot better than it was originally. Okay. I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, that's um, great information because like I said, it's it's not anything that I'm aware of. Um, so, and we'll, we'll find the, the movie and then uh, make mention of it. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> In terms of, so like the official diagnosis, like what was your stage? What was your grade? Um, if you if you mm-hmm. have that information. I do. It was stage 3A. Okay. Um, I guess it depends on which imaging you believe, whether you believe a PET scan or MRI. It was either stage 3A or stage 2B, depending on the size of the tumor, as determined by imaging. And of course, you don't really know for sure what the size was unless you excise it. Right. Um, and by the time I had surgery, it was gone. So um, it was either 3A or 2B, and then it was, I think it was grade 2. It was an intermediate grade. Okay. Um, 
And so that's probably why it went undetected for a while until it was a pretty large tumor. Right, right. So in terms of the 3A, does that mean that there's um, lymph node involvement, no lymph node involvement? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so stage three, oh boy, this is tricky <laughs> because the staging guidelines recently changed was in the, within the last year. Okay. And actually the stage is now in part determined by receptor status. So okay. it's not, you know, it's not just location and size of the cancerous tumor or tumors. It actually involves other things now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's a very recent change. At the time, uh, the stage was determined by how big the, the initial tumor was and then um, whether you were node positive uh, in your axilla. And then I think stage 3B and 3C is where it spread to regional nodes other than the axilla. So like uh, the clavicle or another area in the chest. Okay. Um, but I didn't have that. I just had it in the axillary nodes okay. and then the single tumor in the breast. Okay. And then um, you said you have a family history that came. I, I do. Every I woman on your... my dad's side. Yeah. 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 So every single woman on my dad's side has had it and survived it. Did you have the um, the testing done for the genetic mutations or didn't go I did. that? Okay. I did. And I think that's standard now. And actually, I was just reading about the American Society of Breast Surgeons just came out with new guidelines for this, for risk assessment for young women. So um, I did the testing and it was negative. But because of my family history, the most likely explanation for that result is that we do have a gene in my family, but it's a gene, a gene that has not yet been identified. Right. So it's not included in the panel that they test for. So it's an unknown it's a known unknown. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of how to say it. Um, so the American Society of Breast Surgeons, I, I just was reading just last, within the hour, they just um, released new risk screening guidelines. So at age 25, every woman is going to have a formal risk assessment by their general practitioner, and then they're wow. referred to um, early screening if they have a higher than average risk. If they do, if they have an average risk, they're going to be supposed to start mammography screening at age 40. Okay. So, like, that's been in flux for a while. The recommendations have been in flux, but I thought that was interesting and something that people might want to. Yeah, that's look into if they're listening. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that that is um, something that's important, and I think that it's something that's missed. Um, so, you know, the the biggest thing for me was I went into the gynecologist and shared with him, you know, I have a, a significant history of cancer on the paternal side of my family. Um, I don't have a relationship with my biological father, but I knew of the cancers that existed. And I just shared with him, like, you know, my grandmother died from ovarian cancer. My uncle has prostate. My aunt has colon cancer. I have a cousin with breast cancer. Like I named off all of these things. And he looked at me and he said, you need not worry. They're too distant. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, that's oh. what they told me. Three different PCPs told me that because it was on my dad's side of the family and it wasn't a first degree relative, that it didn't increase my risk. And I later learned after diagnosis, Ugh. as I'm sure you did, that that was completely and utterly wrong. The yes. algorithm they teach you in medical school, they teach, um, you know, general practitioners in medical school, it's not correct. Right. If the field is changing too rapidly and 
and medical schools are not keeping up with it. Right. Well, and that's, that's exactly what he told me was you don't get breast cancer from your father. You get breast cancer from your mother. And I was like, ah. (laughs) It gives you a false sense of security. So for me, I was like, well, because I had a newborn, you know, I had just been breastfeeding her pregnant for the last, I don't know, four years Mm -hmm. straight. I was pretty tired and didn't have a lot of extra capacity for looking out for my own physical needs. Um, You know, I was struggling to even get normal meals. Right. At that point with a colicky newborn who refused bottles and wouldn't sleep and a super high energy toddler that, you know, I had to run around after to make sure he didn't run into traffic. I mean, it was, I didn't have a lot of (laughs) time to think about, oh, okay, the doctor might be wrong about this. And I had three different doctors telling me the same thing. Yeah, that's the It misleads you. If they had said nothing or said, I don't know. At least you and I would have been tipped off. Okay, maybe we need to do more research into this. But actively telling the person that it doesn't matter, it doesn't affect your risk, that's flat out wrong information. Well, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And he was very, very hellbent on you don't have cancer. And I was like, oh, okay. And then when I was diagnosed, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's terrible because it's – I don't think, I find it hard to believe that young men would be told, would be treated in that way. I feel like there's some paternalism going on where, you know, women are hysterical and, oh, of course you think your lump is breast cancer even though you're 35. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's not cool. (laughs) It's not cool. And it probably leads to more women being diagnosed later. And I think the statistics support this. Right. I'm not saying it's all the doctor's fault, but I mean, you know, they can do better. We Absolutely. We can do better, and that's what the American Society of Breast Surgeons has just taken on and made new recommendations. Right. So good for them. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I think every woman should have that done um, to, you know, kind of figure out what their risk is. So, you yeah, know, and obviously it's not going to be it. perfect, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's no there's no such thing as perfection, but we can certainly right. improve and future of medicine is personalized medicine and yes. personalized risk assessment and I think they're doing the right thing. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's great information. Um, so you talked a little bit about your course of treatment. Um, so I know that you mentioned that you did chemotherapy. Um, did you undergo surgery to remove the, um, did you have a lumpectomy? Did you do a mastectomy? Um, what did that mm-hmm. look like for you? Yeah, so I want to preface this by saying that, like, every treatment pattern is so different, mm-hmm. and the reconstruction decision is so personal. Yes. I don't ever want anyone to think that because, you know, I made choice A, that choice B is not right for them, or that it's inferior, or anything like that. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm, we've been on one month three of a cold here. Oh. <clears throat> um, I just want to I just want that to be clear because I feel like there's always this weird competition that mindset that happens when we talk about reconstruction sometimes like, well, I chose to go flat. Well, I don't want my boobs to define me. I mean, yes, that's how I feel, Mm -hmm. but not everyone feels that way. And absolutely. That's okay. And I think that's, (laughs) you know, that's kind of the biggest part of this podcast is that we want to be able to share stories 
from different perspectives because, you know, while we are all um, represented, if you will, by that pink ribbon, and we all have had a diagnosis of breast cancer, our journeys are never the same. And where we are in our life in terms of certain things and making certain decisions will never be the same for every single person. And so I love that you preface that. Um, and I do think that it's important that, you know, people make their own decisions, um, you know, but we certainly want to be able to share stories that really just show that not every story that is behind that pink ribbon is exactly the same. Yeah, I don't think there's any two that are exactly the same. Yeah. And on the subject of the pink ribbon, women with metastatic disease don't feel represented by the pink ribbon. I know. They they have their own ribbon, which yes. I, I I prefer because it includes the 30% of early stagers that go on to develop metastatic disease, right? which is the only breast cancer that kills. So I always like to make sure I mention, I mean, if you're an early stager, you're not lucky to have had cancer, but you're lucky that it was treatable. Right. So my, my treatment course, um, since it was such a huge tumor and it was already in the nodes and it was HER2 positive, they decided to do um, chemo before surgery, which means I had four and a half months of a cocktail of four different drugs, including the HER2 drug Herceptin, which I mentioned before. So I had infusions <clears throat> for four and a half months and I had followed by um, a double mastectomy. So uh, I guess I so followed by a double mastectomy, followed by um, full radiation treatment, followed by uh, tamoxifen, followed by a year of a drug called neurotinib, which is another HER2 drug. Okay. So I had a long, long treatment course, and it's still continuing with the tamoxifen, which is, you know, pretty easy to deal with one pill a day. Right. And are you doing um, that for 10 years? Yeah, that's the current standard. Right. And I I mean, honestly, based on the direction that's going, I'm, I might be on tamoxifen for life, but we'll see. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know that um, I had taken it for five years specifically for a, a study. Um, I had some complications with tamoxifen, but right at yeah. Towards the end of that, my, my oncologist was like, well, you know, there was just a no, uh, new article published and it really recommends tamoxifen for 10 years. So I was kind of curious and I'm, I'm 12 years out, so it's a little bit different now than, you know, what it was even two years ago. So I was kind of curious, you know, if they are, it, it is standard. so, <clears throat> excuse me, so rapidly evolving mm -hmm. and, you know, we're, again, we're not lucky to have cancer, but just even 15 years ago treatment side effects were so much worse. Oh yeah. And treatment options were so much more limited. And I really have, I have hope that when my daughter is old enough to have to worry about this disease that, you know, hopefully the treatments will be even better and hopefully we'll have some treatments for metastatic disease that convert it to a, a really chronic condition instead of what it is now, which is a prognosis of like, right on the order of several years. Right. Um, so I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, so I, I, I did want to talk. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just going to agree with you that I have seen the, the growth over, you know, just the time that I was diagnosed to now, um, you know, in terms of the advancements um, in medicine specific to breast cancer. Um, yeah. And I think that part of that has come with, 
so many young women who are now really advocating and really showing up um, to give a voice because before I don't know that that was happening. Um, you know, when I was, when I was diagnosed, it was, I was searching for somebody that was my age and I couldn't find people that were my age. Um, and so I, I think that that medical advancement has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, there are so many more young women now who are really just kind of stepping up to the plate and, you know, advocating and lobbying and doing all of those things to make our voices heard. Absolutely. And in terms of finding support for young women, there's organizations um, that have a big online presence like Young Survival Coalition and Living Beyond Breast Cancer and Facing Our Risk of Empowered. Those are organizations that, you know, serve younger patients specifically and really make it possible for patients to connect with other, other patients for support. And it's so important. And we didn't used to have that even I don't know how long ago these organizations were established, but certainly 10 or 15 years ago, there was nowhere near the level of support (laughs) and available good information that we have now. But I also want to shout out to the um, the researchers. I'm a a scientist myself. I was in uh, research and development um, before I had kids. This is like these new drugs are people's life work and blood, sweat, and tears. And when you are in research, so much of your so much of your work involves just absolute failure, and then you just keep at it, and eventually you get that one success, and that one success can be life changing for so many people. So I really have a lot of respect for the the individual scientists absolutely that have contributed to all these things. Yeah, for sure, and I agree with that, and I think that it's important too that. Um, so for me, when I when I was, um, they were trying to figure out the the need for can um, the need for chemotherapy for me, and um, we had done some yeah. testing, and I was kind of in that intermediate range where they didn't really have the information to say that it was necessary, but they also didn't have the information to say that it you know that I could go without. And so one of the things that my oncologist said was, we have a research study that's currently going on that would randomize you to either taking tamoxifen or doing tamoxifen in addition to chemotherapy. And for me that was really important to do because mm-hmm. I hoped that in the future my decision to participate in that study would help somebody else in their course of treatment that maybe they would have better information to say yes, you know, that chemotherapy is important for that intermediate range or no, you know, there, these women are, or, you know, men and women are living long lives, even with just the tamoxifen. So I think that, you know, kind of adding on to shouting out to the researchers, also mentioning that, you know, if there's an option to participate in a research study, I would, you know, certainly encourage people to look at the information and decide if that's, you know, something that's right for them. Absolutely. And there are um, ongoing nationwide efforts to look at genetic causes of cancer. I'm thinking of um, the National Institutes of Health has a program called All of Us. And I know nobody, everybody's afraid of big data, but really to solve a problem like this, you do need big data. Mm-hmm. And if it's, if you feel like it's right for you to participate in research, there's so many different options, you know? Right. There's so many different um studies that are always going on and you can ask your oncologist and find what you're eligible for. 
Right. And even sometimes um, my husband and I have even donated to um, research. Specifically, we've donated to like McGee um, Research and so, oh, yeah. you know, anything that we can do in that way as well, um, you know, has always been important for us too. So it's not, you know, if it's, if participating in the research isn't your, your jam, <laughs> then maybe, you know, even just giving some, you know, monies to help support the cause um, is good too. Yeah. Um, it's an effort that requires um, everybody's work together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So. I want to kind of go back a little bit, um, and so kind of going in terms of the um, course of treatment, so you kind of talked about your decision, um, and so after having the mastectomy, you opted for what? Yeah, um, you mean my, my reconstructive Yeah, yeah, what did you experience? opt for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so in chemo, you know, I had a lot of time to think. I had six months or so to consider what I was going to do after surgery. It was inevitable that I had to have the breasts removed. So there was no real choice about that. That was a medical decision. Mm-hmm. Um, the question for me was, do I pursue reconstruction or do I go flat? And for me... As soon as lumpectomy was taken off the table, you know, for medical reasons, as soon as it was clear that I couldn't save any of my breasts, the only other option I ever considered was just going flat. You know, I had no interest in implants for various reasons. Um, I had no interest in a, a really long surgery to do harvest tissue from some other part of my body and do autologous reconstruction. I just, none of those things, all those things involved, you know, an extended, like, surgical recovery period, lots of extra visits to the surgeon, extra risk, extra time, extra expense. It's just, I just didn't, that was not something that appealed to me. Right. So, so I made out of the, the decision gate, to just go flat. Yeah, I mean, just really, like, I mean, I'm assuming that your surgeon probably had a conversation with you about the different options. Um, oh, of course. But you were... Yeah, I had a plastic surgery consult, um, okay. which you know, I think most, most women do now. Not everyone does, but mm-hmm. I was at Cleveland Clinic, and my breast surgical oncologist, as soon as I said that I wanted to go flat, um, she said, oh, let's bring on a plastic surgeon for the closure if you're worried about getting a good result. I was like, great, let's do that. Yeah, so, yeah, so I went to talk to this plastic surgeon that she referred me to at Cleveland Clinic and talked about all my options at the first consult because as a prudent, reasonable person, I like to know what the options are before I make my decision. So I did. I talked to him about the different options. And then the next time, I don't know, it was a couple months later, further into chemo, you know, um, lumpectomy had been taken off the table. And so I just went in there and said, I made my decision and I want to be flat and I want, you know, a smooth flat contour. I don't want any extra skin. I want to be done in one surgery and just get back to taking care of my kids. Because mm-hmm. again, like I had two toddlers right. that need me at home. So I made the call 
he seemed to respect my decision. Okay. And then, well, he seemed to. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot more to the story. I don't know how much you want to go into it, but. I mean, whatever you're willing to share, quite honestly. I mean, for me, I think it's whatever you think might be helpful for somebody else. Um, you know, if you well, so I've since become an advocate. <clears throat> yes. Um, for women to be able to protect their choice to go flat, um, because it's not always a choice that is respected, and it's not always a choice that's given the consideration that it deserves. Um, you know, okay. women who choose to have breast bound reconstruction, as I like to call it, they get a plastic surgeon mm-hmm. to get a good aesthetic result. They get the services of a specialist who specializes in getting a good aesthetic result. Right. Women that go flat, on the other hand, are sort of like funneled off at the outset. And there seems to be an assumption that if you choose to go flat, you don't really care what you look like or you're going to change your mind or that there's a prevailing attitude that it's not really a legitimate decision. So is that typically, so if somebody decides to go flat, is it typically something that they then, while the breast surgeon is in there doing the mastectomy, that they kind of finalize that process? Is that typically what has happened? So there's a huge variation in what, in outcomes, in aesthetic outcomes. And it is completely out of the patient's control. And it, this is, <clears throat> it becomes really complicated. So, so some breast surgeons do have great flat closure skills, so they can produce a, a good contour in one surgery. It does take a little extra time in the operating room to, to, you know, you take the breast tissue out, you're basically scooping out, like with two ice cream scoops out of your chest, and as you can imagine, that leaves some lumps and bumps. Mm-hmm. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it takes a little extra t- extra time to clean up the clean up the area and make it nice and smooth. Um, some breast surgeons can do that, and they're willing to do that. Others, <clears throat> their skills aren't so great, or they're not willing to take the extra time, or they. Um, in the case of my surgeon, intentionally leave excess tissue in case you change your mind and against your consent. That's what happened to me. I actually had a plastic surgeon there, a specialist, to do the cleanup. And while I was on the operating table, <clears throat> excuse me, I heard him say, I'll just leave a little extra in case you change your mind. <clears throat> no. And I was like, nope, nope, no, 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 make it flat. Yeah. <laughs> and then I conked out. And when I woke up, it was really, like, my chest looks like it's just waiting for implants to be shoved in there. Like, there's two pockets of excess skin just sitting there because he thought I'd changed my mind and want implants. Oh, my gosh. It it sounds, like, so unbelievable, doesn't it? Uh, Yeah. I mean, the fact that you were lying there... And he mentioned it, and you said, no, I would like to be flat, but then he still took it upon himself to do that is mind-blowing. It's still hard for me to talk about, like, I still get, like, the heart or blood pressure rise. Oh, and, like, sure. the Weird, like, fight-or-flight response, mm-hmm. because at the time when that happened, 
I had no idea what he was planning to do. And I had the IV in my arm, and then I just, I was like preparing to be, you know, potentially die on the operating table. I mean, not everyone wakes up from surgery. Like, I had other things on my mind. Yeah. Thinking about my kids, I was thinking about my husband, I was thinking about my family. Yeah, three-year-old. And then I heard him say, I'll just leave a little extra, like he was just musing about it to himself because it was a co-surgery and that means he was just basically waiting around for the oncologist to finish her job right before he took over oh my gosh yeah it's it's horrible and i'm not the only person that this has happened to um from this specific person or other plastic surgeons it surgeons all over the the u.s and canada and even beyond do this it's oh. probably a small minority of surgeons that would even consider doing that. And most of the time when you have a poor aesthetic outcome, it's not because the surgeon intentionally did it. It's more just a matter of they didn't either didn't have really great um, skills, contouring skills, or, you know, they just didn't have the same idea of what the patient expected. Right. You know, sometimes it's a matter of like mismatch of expectation. Um, but it, in a small number of cases, it's intentional. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I actually did, I've done a little bit of research on this. And I'm going to be, hopefully be presenting it at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in Very December. Nice. Yeah. And my, yeah. And my research shows that it's about the risk of being intentionally denied a flat result is about 5%. Five percent of women that choose to go flat are intentionally denied a flat result, That's and then too many for the women that get just an egregiously bad result, but it's not intentional. That's closer to, I believe, seven or eight percent. I want to say mm-hmm. so. At least one in ten right. women who choose to get a who choose to go flat just wake up to something that they never, never in a, a thousand years would have expected to happen. Right. Absolutely. And there is, I cannot even imagine waking up after that experience. It's not fun. No. It's a real violation of your bodily integrity. It's a violation of consent. Right. I mean, it's just unacceptable. And it was unacceptable in the 50s, but we're in, it's it's 2019 people. Right. It's not okay (laughs) to disregard a patient's consent. And I don't think anyone can argue otherwise. No, there's no argument to disregard a patient's wishes. So, right. unfortunately, in these small number of cases, the surgeons aren't really held accountable, and that's why it keeps happening. So, oh. I sort of went public with my story and ended up on the Today Show and ended up protesting on the street in front of Cleveland Clinic, which you can imagine is really fun for an introvert. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's, I made a big stink. Uh, it didn't really, nothing really happened. Um, the surgeon was not held accountable. Um, so I just decided to just go public with my story and see how far I could get with that, trying to shed light on the issue. Yeah. Well, and, and that I ended kind of up, led you to where you are today. Yeah. Right? Led me to where I am today, which is yeah. I'm the secretary of a, a soon to be nonprofit flat closure now and you can find our all of our information about going flat at flatclosurenow.org we have like the biggest photo gallery on the web of women who chose to go flat we have information about how to prepare 
yourself, how to protect your decision, yes. how to deal with it if you're denied the result that you chose, you know, how to find a surgeon. I have a list of patient-recommended surgeons oh, good. that have good flat closure skills, and we're growing the list every day. So we have a lot of resources for women that choose to go flat. And do you have that resource available for, like, each state? Is that... Or is that something Good that question. you're moving so towards? It's a, yeah, it, we're just starting out. Um, okay. Right now we have about 120 surgeons across the U.S. and Canada, and we have a couple internationally also, um, but mostly in the U.S. and Canada, um, plastic and surgical oncologists also. <clears throat> um, some states have more than others. California, we have quite a few. And then in the central Midwest, where the population density is pretty low. We have a lot a lot less, unfortunately, but we're working on growing it and we're working on formalizing the, the, the list into a directory that can be used nice. more easily. But right now, you, you basically, you email me and I, I look through the list and see oh, okay. who's on there that would be close to you. But, awesome. And um, yeah. can you provide your email just in case somebody does have a, um, you know, somebody's looking for a plastic surgeon or... Um, just somebody that can offer of that? Of course. Yeah. <clears throat> you can find everything at flatclosurenow.org. Okay. Um, all this, everything's linked to there, but the direct email address for the list is not putting on a shirt at Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> not putting on a shirt at Gmail. Yeah, that was okay. my original name for my original organization that I was uh, working on when I started protesting. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, no worries. I mean, I think that that's a, a great resource to have because, um, you know, I I think, and I'm not, you know, super aware in terms of the statistics. I mean, I think that going flat is um, becoming more, um, I, I think more women are opting for that option nowadays. Well, it's certainly becoming more visible. And that's yes. in large part due to the work of flat advocates. Right. And um, and also, since the FDA hearings on breast implant illness, there have been a lot of women explanting and going flat after explant. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, so that's a really big growing population of women that are going flat for their health. Right. Yeah. And just having somewhere to turn to. I think that's a, a great, you know, thing that you're you're doing, I mean, I'm, I'm super sorry and I, um, would never ever wish that anybody's, you know, right to choose for anything would be denied. Um, you know, but you've obviously taken that experience and are doing something positive so that maybe other people don't have that same experience. Um, and I think that that is great. Um, yeah, this is why we become advocates, right? I mean, you're an advocate and doing this podcast, you saw a need and you stepped in to fill the need. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's it. I mean, I think that we all bring different things to the table. And, um, you know, certainly I, I know that, you know, each of us can learn from, you know, each other. Um, so I certainly appreciate you sharing that. I know there was a little bit of hesitation and still some struggles um, in, in talking about that experience. So I'm certainly appreciative that you um, were willing yeah. to share that. So it, um, it is a struggle. I still haven't gotten it fixed, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, most women that go flat just want to be done in one surgery. And that was, that option was right. literally taken away from me. And I still haven't been able to pull, pull the trigger, so to speak, on getting a revision surgery to fix it. So every day I look in the mirror, yeah, it's right there staring back at me. Right. It's not easy, 
but it does motivate me to, to try to prevent it from happening to other women. Right. Yeah. Well, and if we can avoid that extra trauma, yes, we have a duty to try to avoid it. Absolutely. And I think that that's yeah. just fantastic that you're, you know, doing all the things that you're doing to support that. So, um, <laughs> thank you. Before we actually end, I want to go back to, uh, you will be in San Antonio in December, correct? It's yep. That's my plan. Okay. Got my hotel booked and everything. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'm right. presenting a poster. So okay. at these big con scientific conferences in San Antonio is the biggest one for breast cancer surgery. Right. These big conferences, they have, you know, like a big room with mm -hmm. a bunch of posters for new research. Yeah. All I'll right. be there with my poster Yay. with my, <laughs> and with my research and hopefully convince some epidemiologists to do some larger scale studies to sort of develop a standard of care that protects women's choice to go flat better than the current situation. Yeah. I'll absolutely. be there. Yeah. Well, San Antonio great. in December is a lot nicer than Pittsburgh in December. Hopefully. <laughs> True story. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you again for coming on and being a part of this podcast. Um, I, you know, I have learned a lot of great information um, just from our conversation. So, um, you know, thank you so much. And I hope that you'll kind of keep me posted on your research and, um, you know, keep me posted on your, um, you know, what happens next in terms of that reconstruction and all of those things. So, but thank you so much. Will do. Thank yeah. you for your work also, Melissa. And Absolutely. thanks for letting me be here and speak with you today. For sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.